This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, Stepan Berko, Advocacy Manager with Your Foundation, gives us a first-hand look at Ukraine's capital, Kiev. So make sure you check that out. Also, Canada's bee populations are plummeting for fascinating, concerning reasons. Paul Kelly is a University of Guelph researcher, and he helps us understand why bee populations are so volatile, where they're important, and what we can do to help out, plus some great dad jokes. Plus, are you okay with sharing? All of this and more on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay with pickleball? Pickleball. I remember the the first time I saw an ad for it, and I thought it was a joke, like an April Fool's joke. Uh, and I found out it is a real thing. And uh, I'm really disappointed it was not invented when I was in like elementary school like it wasn't around like it wasn't mm. a thing that i realized until i was older it seems like a really fun sport uh that really anybody can play so in that regard yeah absolutely i'm okay with it so it's newer okay because like yeah i just started hearing about it too but i just figured yeah. it was because my mom she's in this plus 55 community called the villages in florida um and uh, yeah, so ever since she's moved there, when she talks to me, she's all like, oh yeah, after this, I'm going out to shoot around to golf, and then maybe tonight we'll play some pickleball. And I'm just like, I thought it was just an old person's thing that I hadn't heard of, because my mom, when I was younger, wasn't old and didn't play pickleball. Pickleball. Right. So now pickleball. it's newer. It's newer, you're saying. I don't even know what it is or what it looks like or what oh, happens. Oh, you don't? Okay. No. Well, I, the way that I would describe it, and Ryan can confirm or or, or not, is oh, that it right. really it looks like a slower, smaller version of tennis. It's like ping pong style paddles. Like they're less stringy, more paddly. And the ball is more rubbery, mm-hmm. not as tennis ball bouncy. So it doesn't go flying quite as hot. And then the court is smaller. And it's less running. So it's kind of like a slowed down version of tennis, smaller, slowed down version of tennis. Is that fair, Rye? I would say it's essentially if you took, yes, if you slowed down tennis and combined it with badminton. It's Ooh, kind of the smaller scale. Like it's really pickleball is kind of like a hodgepodge of racket sports, mm-hmm. um, which is well, I love racket sports. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why it appeals to so many people is I tried playing tennis once and I, I was dead. Like I was just no cardio. I was out of gas <laughs> so fast. But pickleball. Well, it's hard. It, yes, yeah, so hard. But pickleball is way more accessible, but still like takes, you know, some strategy and, and, uh, and some learning. Right. So, yeah, yeah I would, I think it, that's a good description of it. Yeah. yeah. The net's more like a tennis net, though. It's not up in the air like Yes. A- yeah, like a, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so yeah. my mom and dad, my mom was playing pickleball. They would go on their, their snowbird camping trips and, and they would go play pickleball in the daytime. And that's where I heard of it. So I always thought it was mm-hmm. like, oh, it's old people. Look at the, you know, pickleball, the pickleball place closes at 4.30, you know, when happy hour starts kind of thing. And, <laughs> you know, late night pickleball happens at 5.30 yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, but now there's some pickleball courts starting to pop up in town. Mm-hmm. And you see young families playing and, and old folks playing with the kids. And I don't know, that's pretty cool. Give it a go. So it does combine all kinds of different racket sports. It was invented in 1965 as a children's backyard game in Bainsbridge Island, Washington. 
In 2022, pickleball was adopted as the official state sport of Washington as well, but like most racket sports, the pickleball makes a noise when it hits the racket, a very loud noise, and residents in Philadelphia want a pickleball court to be dismantled because they can't stand the sound of the ball. I wake up, I hear it. I walk down the steps, I hear it. Open the back door to let the dog out, you hear it. One of the hottest recreational sports in the country right now happens to be one of the loudest. Like a pop, 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 and it feels like it's right in our house. Just ask the residents of the 8100 block of Ardley Street in Chestnut Hill. Their homes sit just feet away from the pickleball courts at the Water Tower Recreational Center run by the city. Since the pandemic, the courts have become a popular place. It appeals to a wide range of people. There's people playing with knee replacements, hip replacements. It's hard to deny the popularity of pickleball men women young and old have taken up the game but also players admit it's hard i get it at the same time that's what recreation is supposed to be for so trying to find somewhere in the middle i think there's some some validity to it i mean it is noisier than tennis um and i think the dialogue between the players and the, and the residents is important. The noise issue was at the center of a packed public meeting, some residents demanding changes. Some suggested softer balls and paddles and cutting the court's hours. Some just wanted shut down altogether. You need to stop this immediately. If not, they're planning a lawsuit against the city for breaking its own noise ordinance. Eight, nine months a year, you can't open your windows ever try and live someplace where you can't open your windows with the racket that's how loud it is oh, oh god oh dear hashtag first world problems yeah. dude like really oh, man. that'd be like complaining because you lived on a golf course and you hear the clink clink mm-hmm. yeah or right. like the people here in town who move into the condos right beside the sky train and then they're like <laughs> the sky train is loud it's like well then Maybe not that's crazy. move into that mm-hmm. particular condo. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's from Fox 29, by the way. That angry man, fun fact, you just heard his name, Joe O'Donnell. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and look at these the couple of angry O'Donnells yeah, on the radio. The O'Donnells, are they, they're complainers. The yeah. city of Philadelphia said it will open more pickleball courts at a recreation center in Mount Airy, which would help alleviate the noise problem by distributing the pickleballers, I guess. Are you okay with sharing? Are you okay with sharing? Because it's good to share, I would say. Yeah, I like uh, I like getting things, you know, off my chest. You know, I like to just, you know, vent and be open. So I feel like it's kind of like a uh, a relief, and uh, mm. yeah, it's a good feeling. You know, spread the wealth. I like that. Mm-hmm. I think you're talking about two different kinds of sharing there. You're talking about I probably should have yeah. specified that this was more about like sharing things about yourself oh, okay. in uh, the Are You Okay script arena there. Um, but if you want to talk about like um, sharing fries, I'm not okay with that. They're my uh, fries. So don't take oh, any. Oh, wow. See? Well, not if you don't ask. If you don't ask, I will stab you in the hand with a fork. Well, that's yes. not sharing. Warranted. That's stealing. If you don't ask, that's just straight up stealing. <laughs> it is. Sharing yeah. is no, like, hey, do you want some of my fries? I'm willing to share some with you, or we you look need hungry. to share more. I mean, knowledge knowledge is useless unless you share it, right? Mm-hmm. Like all of the knowledge that you have is quite useless until you share it with somebody. 
I mean, it might stop you from stubbing your toe on a coffee table, but aside from that, it's quite useless. So knowledge needs to be shared. So to your point, Ryan, about sharing things about yourself, I think that that's important that you do. Now, would you consider yourself, yes or no, uh, Ryan and Brendan, a an open person, open to sharing details of your life if you walk into a group with strangers and uh, you're like, hello, I'm Brendan, how are you today? Are, Ryan, are you o- open to sharing? Yeah, I'm a pretty open. I'm a pretty open guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Brennan? No, for me, it's selected. It's very selected. A group of strangers? No, I'm very open with you. What if they ask though? Life. If someone asks you questions, will you answer them? It depends what they ask. To be honest, like if they ask me something where I'm like, I'm just gonna like where I don't want to answer, I'll just be like, no, I'm not gonna tell you that right now until we yeah. get to know each yeah, other. Yeah, and I more. will do that. I will not lie. I will say actually, you know, thanks for asking. That's not something I like to talk about, yeah, right? I I don't like to do the BS answer, right? I think that that yeah. matters. But yeah, if somebody asks me, I, I will. Well, there was an interview that happened in the sports world with a UFC fighter by the name of Joel Bauman. He is very much an open person, at least based on this interview. Some might say he's too open, you know, with strangers sharing things that are going on in his life. In a post-fight interview, after knocking out Reese Forrest in their middleweight bout, at Burt Ogden Arena in Texas, this is what he shared about his experience around the fight. Last fight, I was tired. I was exhausted. I'm about to launch this NFT that's going to change the fight game. And I put in 30 all-nighters before that fight. I had herpes before that fight, two outbreaks in the span of a week. I'm here. I'm healthy. Let's go. Whatever. Oh, See, why do you want to share that? I mean, Does hey, adrenaline you, make you do that? It's got to be adrenaline. I mean, it's good practice if you have herpes to disclose that to your partner. Maybe not the entire sports world, and now well, maybe not the ring announcer. Um, yeah, I, it has to be the adrenaline. Like, l- remove the filter. He's revved up. He won. He doesn't care. Yeah. That has to be the motivation for sharing. Wow. That. Can we hear that Is one more weird? time, please? Yeah, please. that's weird. Last fight, I was tired. I was exhausted. I'm about to launch this NFT that's going to change the fight game. And I put in 30 all-nighters before that fight. I had herpes before that fight, two outbreaks in the span of a week. I'm here. I'm healthy. Let's go. Whatever. Is it is it weird that the NFT thing made me cringe more than herpes? Uh, that's that weird? weird. Yeah, I don't well, know. I was thinking the 30 all-nighters and the herpes are probably related. It's got to be. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking it was a UFC fight, and if they're grappling around in the ground, wouldn't you want to let the other fighter know? Yeah, that the too. Yeah. The hygiene. I mean, ah, oh, man. Uh, well, I hope the. Uh, I hope they knew that. They do now. Uh, Bauman's post-fight interview has accumulated nearly one million views on social media after seeing the clip. Bauman's last opponent, uh, Rem, to weigh in on it, and that's the end of the story. Um, so there you go. Uh, that kind of sharing. <laughs> I mean, hey, I admire your willingness to own your stuff, mm-hmm. right? Like, just throw it out there. Just, there's no apologies. This is who that dude is. Good for you. I still, I don't know, man. That seems like <laughs> yeah. a lot for me. <laughs> yeah, like, that's a pretty personal thing to share. Even the NFT thing seemed like a lot for me, yeah, um, let alone the... Um, uh, the herpes thing, but hey, if if that's your jam and and you want to, you know, I, I admire the fact that he just owned it. That's kind of mm-hmm. cool. Okay. 
This is the Shift Podcast. Stepan Verko uh, is here with us. Um, Stepan, how are you? I'm okay, Shane. Nice hearing you. Uh, it's nice to hear you too. Just so you know, there seems to be just a little bit of a delay on our connection. That'll probably get a little better as time goes on, but uh, we'll be patient with uh, walking on each other. If that's the case, then with our voices, that's no big deal. We'll figure it out. Um, how are you? It's been a few days since we've chatted, Stepan. Um, how are things in Lviv for you? Our situation in Lviv is... Uh... Pretty much the same as uh, during recent weeks. So we fortunately didn't have any missile hits, but uh, uh, from time to time we have uh, air sirens, and that's pretty much it. I had an opportunity to go and visit Kiev uh, and my house, so I can also tell you what what was going on there. Uh, so tell me um, about that, please, because my understanding is that your office is was originally located in, in, in Kiev, and then now through the course of the war, you and your colleagues have scattered about Ukraine. Um, does that make you nervous before we get there? Can we talk about the uh, Stepanberko human side here when you're going to Kiev the first time and you're going to see your home, you're going to see your old life after three months? That must have been, uh, were you nervous or were you excited or, or what was going through you? Yeah, I was both nervous and excited. Uh, I took a train and it took uh, me like eight and a half hours, like three hours longer than usually. And, uh, you know, I, I uh, all the people who were on the train, there were people who were you know, coming back to to their homes. And when we were about to approach cave, everybody was, you know, looking through the windows and trying to see what, what's going on with their hometown. Um, I would say that Kiev looks even better than before war because uh, there are less people there and, you know, streets are less crowded. So that's a good point. But on the other hand, you can feel that... Uh, you know, this city has lived through some uh, stressful times. And I would say that some people, you can see it in some people's eyes. But besides that, Kiev looks great. And more and more people are coming back. And even uh, our office, we are thinking about coming back to Kiev in recent weeks. So it must, it, most people don't understand when... Um the conversation around the Russian troops invading Ukraine and how close Russia came. And I think one of the assumptions, unless you've spent time with the map, is that most, I mean, Russia is, for the most part, to the east of Ukraine, I guess in that that sort of one, you know, that the, the Dnipro and Donetsk, I mean, it's to the north and to the east. But troops came from the west from Belarus to the west in um, in around Kiev, and they got to Irpin, which is like us right on the outskirts of of Kiev. It's it's a you know an urban center just outside, right? So I mean, Russian troops came really close. Do do most people? Uh, I think most people don't understand how close Russia came to Kiev before they got pushed back. Yeah, you're right, Shane. And actually, there were some troops inside Kiev, and there were fights in in, in the city, uh, because some of the you know uh, Russian uh, uh, I don't know 
how they call these better equipped troops they entered the city and some of them were already inside waiting for the for for, for the for the russian uh, uh, invasion so uh my a friend of mine who lives not far from the downtown he told me that the first three days of the invasion it was horrible because uh, uh, right near his uh, apartment buildings there were fighting street fighting fights uh, with uh, uh, heavy shelling so i would say it's not that russians came close to city they were in the city but fortunately they didn't manage to uh, you know overwhelm our uh, troops and uh, get inside with all their strength so it's been three months Stepan, since you left kiev you've been in lviv your family is out of ukraine i mean all of these things have gone on for a very very long time you go home to your place in Kiev. Did you get to see anybody special, neighbors, uh, friends? Did you, like, uh, it's been three months is a long time, let alone, I mean, even if it was a three-month sabbatical where you went away to work, Stepan, I mean, not including the war part, I think we can all relate to how long three months is. Were you surprised? Was anybody, um, you know, personally, did you get to run into any neighbors or, or, or anybody like that was that, that's doing the same in returning? Oh, yes, I, I've spent four days in Kiev and I've planned each of these days to visit some friends or neighbors of mine. So I had a pretty, you know, busy, busy time there. And it was, uh, you know, like meeting someone from your previous life before war. And uh, I would say that there was only one topic on our, on our minds. And when we were talking is uh, uh, the war how the city has changed uh, and how how in fact we like this city and love this city because you know when you live in your home in your town and it's just you know daily routine you don't you don't you often don't uh, see how beautiful uh you know the buildings are or the places you go to you like the the coffee you like to drink and only when it's threatened by, you know, a military invasion, only then you cherish, start cherishing these small things. And that's what we were talking about with uh, my friends and neighbors. And that was a quite uh, an interesting experience. Uh, was there one thing that sticks out that you can share with us, whether it was coffee or, or buildings? Uh, you know, the 2014 Crimea, you know, did not bring russian soldiers into kiev as far as i understand so this must be a remarkable uh place to be sitting today uh before the war and after the war i mean these are these benchmarks of time that we go through in our lives and in history um to be able to look at this with a whole new view of gratitude maybe uh, sooner than than you might have thought getting back to what life looks like at least in in the capital city yeah uh, I mean, you still can feel the, 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 the war in the city because there are so many trenches all over the city. Like every, every uh, bridge, every uh, railway crossing or every uh, major, um, every major street, there are roadblocks and uh, trenches and if, if people with guns you know checking the documents so i wouldn't say that you know kiev is entirely peaceful city not like lviv because uh, lviv is more or less uh, in the same way as it was before war uh, 
maybe more people. But Kyiv is still, you know, in, in this kind of readiness for anything, that anything can happen any moment. And I think uh, many people get, got used to that. But uh, for me, since I was living in Lviv for three months, when I came to, to, to Kyiv to see that, that was kind of um, a new thing. Uh, does it, the, the, the positivity of Ukrainians, the, you know, the way you've shared stories with me of confidence and, um, does this add to, I mean, I'm assuming it adds to that, but does it add a whole new level of, of confidence and getting back to normal? Um, I, I, I asked this question, Stepan, because I don't quite understand. Like, I, I don't quite, I absolutely do not understand what you've been through. Right. And so I really am just curious about, it's been amazing to me to observe how Ukrainians' confidence, at least what you've shared, um, has been remarkable. I imagine there have been moments where, uh, you know, that's very scary. Um, but yet here is this more, I, I'm more light shining on the future of Ukraine. And it, it almost becomes, this is not over, but it almost becomes more visible now. You can see the future of Ukraine and that at least, uh, you, the resolve is so much stronger, right? The, I don't know. I guess I, I'm not quite sure what I'm asking, but I hope you understand um, that. That can yeah, you yeah, see sure. it differently now? I, is it? Yeah. I think I do. But to tell you the truth, uh, I would say that it's ups and downs every time. So I wouldn't say that uh, we've had this experience of uh, you know three months of fighting and our capital saved from the invasion, uh, and now we are so confident and we see the. Uh, the, the path to our victory. No, unfortunately, it's not that way. Uh, because sometimes uh, we have military um, uh, success in the, on the, in the east and in the south. And sometimes we don't. And right now our troops are uh, facing a very strong um, offensive from Russia in, uh, in the east. And uh, on the news we hear... Uh, about, uh, you know, our troops retreating because they want to save uh, people. Uh, and, uh, of course, there are, you know, casualties. And uh, fr from what I see on my social media, many friends of mine, they are losing their friends day and day, you know. Uh, and uh, the fighting is uh, far from over. And, uh, unfortunately, our military is not as so strong to you know to to repel this aggression and you know liberate all the all the cities and all the towns that were captured by Russia uh, so i would say right now is this time of uncertainty because it seems that there is this race between um, you know russian troops trying to push us out of some strategic uh, places and at the same time us hoping that uh, western uh, military support will arrive, you know, faster, and then we will we are able to push them back. So I would say that right now we're in this uh, moment of uh, I wouldn't say balance, but some uh, some point of uh, uncertainty, and that you can feel it uh, when you're talking to people. Uh, so people are not that optimistic anymore. Uh, when they were, when we repelled uh, uh, the, the Russians from, from Kiev and Kharkiv, and they see that Russians still 
can uh, uh, can make so much harm to our military and our people under occupation. Far from over uh, is definitely the case. Let's get into the hard stuff here. Uh, what are you hearing? Uh, Severodonetsk, I hope I said that right, um, is 200 bombs or rockets an hour, they're estimating right now, that is getting pummeled with, similar to what was going on in Mariupol. Um, that seems to be the biggest area of fighting right now. What What is the word inside Ukraine? What are you hearing? Uh, yes, you, you, you've named this city correctly. Um, the, the Russians are simply trying to uh, get into this city. And also they're trying to cut off lines of supply uh, for our troops in another city of Lysychansk. And they were pl- they're trying to make this, you know, capture of land and then encircle our troops there. So fighting is really heavy. Uh, and uh, a friend of mine who's in military, he told me that uh, they're simply uh, fighting not for, you know, towns. They're simply uh, fighting for the for the squares on the map. So basically. Uh, they don't care if it's a city populated area or not. There is this square on the map and they have to capture it. So they they shell it heavily with artillery until it's like leveled to the ground and then they're able to uh, get in with their with their troops. So it's it's um, some it's similar to to Mariupol, of course, but Mariupol didn't have time to evacuate people. Unfortunately, uh, because our, our our armed forces were were holding back Russians back, we had time to evacuate as many people as possible for these towns on the east. It must be uh, incredibly difficult to watch this uh, going on. Um, you know, as as it continues week after week, month after month. Um, you know, there have been some countries have been incredibly productive. In sending um, pieces, I, there was one piece that was one meme that was shared about Germany's contribution. Uh, it was a picture of a snail with a bullet taped to its back. Uh, what are you seeing from that perspective? I mean, you're a policymaker, you're an advocate. I mean, your background in law, uh, you know, from from your professional lens, what what do you see here that that we need to know as Canadians that's going on that we might not know? I think that um, the, the you know every country has its own policy on how, whether to supply Ukraine with arms or not, and you know uh, we're thankful to Canada for being so generous. Um, other countries are not as generous, and you know German example is like the most uh, the, the most illustrative example. Uh, what Russians are trying to do now. And we can see it from the discourse on, on many international um, media is that uh, West should be careful not to supply too uh, much military equipment to Ukraine so then Russia can lose and that would be a disaster. So there are so many voices right now in Western media saying we have to have a ceasefire and then maybe Ukraine should, uh, uh, you know, uh, surrender some territories to Russia and then we'll have a peace. Exactly the opposite. And this may sound, you know, uh, 
this may sound, uh, you know, like a working scenario, but ex it, this is exactly what uh, uh, makes Russia go forward with their plans of occupying uh, neighboring countries. Uh, Russia got Crimea in 2014 and uh, wasn't punished for it whatsoever. The sanctions that were imposed by the West were like nothing. And that's what, you know, gave them the idea that they can go forward and do something next. So the only answer of uh, you know, democratic world should be a strong military opposition to Russia. And since uh, NATO and other countries are not willing to fight themselves, is their obligation to supply us with uh, enough weapons then we can fight Russians back and that then, you know, Latvians and Lithuanians and Estonians and Poles don't have to fight Russia in like a year or two. So I hope that um, your leadership and, and, you know, political leaders of other democratic countries understand that, that it's not only fight for Ukraine and it's not only fight for Donbass or, or Kherson or other Ukrainian regions. It's fight between democracy and uh, uh, autocracy. And uh, if we lose now in Ukraine, then you, you'll be next. You want it or not, Russia's, Russia has ambition to, 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 to get to Europe, to influence Europe, to conquer Europe. And that's, uh, they, they will not step back, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Well, many people often forget that, you know, Japan has disputed islands with Russia and Canada shares a border with Russia and Canada has disputed islands with Russia. I mean, not to be forgotten that uh, although it's a, a definitely different scenario than yours, uh, you know, the Can Canadians need to very much pay attention and not to be a, a, a history lesson uh, instructor when I'm not qualified to be one. But in the Second World War, there were negotiations, I believe it was in um in, in and around what was, it became Czechoslovakia and the Slovak republics and all those places in the Balkans that, um, you know, they basically negotiated, well, let Germany have this and then we'll be fine. They'll stop. That lesson was learned very quickly in the past. And I think it needs to be, uh, remembered at times like this because I mean, Crimea would be that example. Uh, Stephen Berko, I need to let you know quickly before we go. Uh, we shared your picture, your profile from work on our uh, Facebook group. Uh, so I could uh, show off your mustache, and it received many compliments. No problem. Thank you for that. <laughs> oh, it's a beautiful thing. Thank you for being so generous with your time and joining us again on The Shift. I look forward to chatting soon. Thank you, Shane. This is The Shift Podcast. Wow. The bees matter, man. Gotta love the bees. I love the bumblebees, right? I don't even know if it's true. Maybe Paul Kelly can help us uh, understand this question. It's the, based on the physics of a bumblebee, they're not supposed to fly. Their body is too big and their wings are too small. And they, it's often shared as a mindful conversation about just nobody told the bees. And then so the bees just went about doing what they do. I don't even know if that's true, Paul, but you're a bee guy. You love the bees. Well, uh, people have improved in how they do their, their math and physics. That, that's basically what happened there. Uh, Bumblebees always could fly, as we know, and now uh, it can be shown through the math that uh, it is definitely possible for them to fly. 
Very, very much so. They have a very big body, though, and pretty small wingspan, so it's like a jumbo jet taking off. They need a bit of a a head start. Bit of a head start. We're not going to body shame any bees in this conversation, just so you know. Uh, With the School of Environmental Sciences, University of Guelph, Paul Kelly, Uh, you're a bee guy, honeybee research uh, center for a lot of decades here, Paul. Uh, The state of the bees is being reported as really quite terrible in the summer of 2022. What's the state of things? Well, uh, right across the country and into the U.S. too, there's uh, beekeepers experiencing uh, much higher colony losses than usual. It's normal for our hives to lose a percentage of their population over the winter and you know even some colonies dying outright but you know 10 to 15 percent of our hives dying would be considered normal uh, but uh, this year there are some beekeepers that have lost as much as 90 percent of their hives uh, some big beekeepers have had very big losses like that uh, but it's really up and down uh, Region to region, bee yard to bee yard, beekeeper to beekeeper. Um, some have had more success than others. And we've got some ideas, but we're still scratching our head a bit on uh, and why it is so bad this year. Does this happen every, I don't know, I kind of think of like, you know, El Nino, Nino and, and, and you know, these weather things that happen on these cycles out of the blue uh, the earth just changes. Is this one of these things that happens every 10 years? There's kind of a bad year or, or is this sort of out of the blue? Wow. What's happening? Well, uh, we do have some years that are better than others and worse than others. And we've happened to have two complete opposite years in a row. And as I'll explain, that fits together last spring, spring of 2021, Our bees were doing extremely well. We hardly lost any through the winter, and that's the toughest time of year for bees. So if a hive is going to die, it usually dies over the winter. But in 2021, we came through the winter in just great shape. Then we had pretty much across Canada an early spring. And so the bees got a, a jump start on building their population up. Over the winter, their population declines uh, about half of what it would be in the fall. So they'll go from say 60,000 bees down to about 30,000 bees in the spring. Then the queen gets laying eggs and they build up the population in the spring once they have access to nectar and pollen from flowers and uh, peak their population when there's lots of nectar available for them to to produce honey. But what happened uh, in 2021 is they got a really early start. So they're raising a lot of offspring in March uh, and everything was at least a month ahead. And uh, that, that, that seems great for bees, but it also led to two significant problems. Uh, one, when hives get crowded full of bees, they swarm. So that to us as beekeepers doesn't mean you're getting attacked by bees. It means half the bees leave the hive to start their own hive in a hollow tree in nature. Like that's what would normally happen. So as a beekeeper, that's one of our goals is to prevent our hives from swarming because we lose half our bees and the remaining hive isn't as productive. So we try to minimize swarming. Well, it was a very tough job to do that last spring, the worst year I've ever seen for for bee swarming. Uh, But another factor that uh, just came in there is because they were reproducing 
very early, that also gave an opportunity for their, their biggest parasite, a mite called Varroa destructor. It sounds evil. They, they, they develop uh, in the bee pupa, so the immature bee. Uh, a mite moves in, lays an egg, and raises uh, her, her multiple eggs, and then raises offspring that feed on the bee pupa. And they, they, they can reproduce best on male bees, and male bees are called drones, and, and uh, the drone production started a month early, which meant the parasite uh, could really build up their population much earlier than, than usual. And so that's one of the main contributors to the colony loss this year, because that by the end of the last summer, the mite level was high enough that it was damaging the worker bees that we hope would be the ones to live through the winter. Hmm. But amongst Let me other create things, a parallel mean, with that for one sec, Paul. So that would be similar to um, a pond that gets a little bit warmer uh, or whatever, and then there's just more algae this year, and then that starts to affect everything else around it, the 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 bugs and the fish or whatever that in it. Um, it gobbles up, you know, oxygen, carbon dioxide levels all start to change. So the whole ecosystem starts to shift. Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, yeah, it's. Uh we're used to a different pattern like these. We've only had these mites since 1990 and they, they didn't originally come from like they came from Southeast Asia from a different bee species there. So the bee, bees we work with originally came from Europe, North Africa, and our bees have had no common history with this mite. So they're very susceptible to the to the mite. And yeah, it's uh because things happened at the different timing, it was difficult for beekeepers to deal with it uh, hmm. last year. And it was expected to some extent because we, we knew, you know, that the mites had got an early start, but there's just, there's not a lot of things that we can do um, when the timing is, is off like that. Yeah. Well, 90%, that's a big number, Paul. How do you recover? It's not like you mean, do you play a little Marvin Gaye or Barry White and uh, the beehive and try to get the bees getting busy or, or like, what do you do? Yeah, it's not quite like that. Uh, but there, what we normally do with the losses that we have over the winter is we divide the best hives the next year. So hives that are very populous, we can divide into two. And of course, there's only one queen. So one of those half of that division needs a queen, which we can raise ourselves or purchase. Some of those are imported from other countries even. Um, but that way we can rebuild the number of colonies that we had going into winter. Uh, we always expect some losses, but when you have up to 90% losses, there's no way you can recover from the 10% that are left. Right. So those beekeepers will have to be purchasing bees from other beekeepers. Um, and uh, there's a lot going on that way right now. Beekeepers helping each other. Uh, but those that have done okay, like nobody did great, but those that have done okay are helping other beekeepers uh, by supplying them with bees. And in some cases, even loaning them bees for um, really to, to get going again. So I, I've done a little bit of reading in advance of this and, and read that, you know, places like Europe uh, with bees in Ukraine, for example, is a place of, you know, bees, um, you know, sunflowers are, are so you know, popular there. And obviously it is a agricultural wonderland when it comes to all things uh, that grow out of the ground. So, I mean, 
all of the impact of all of these things uh, must be impacting availability and access to some of this stuff? Or is that just so well uh, diversified around the world, around Europe, that is still access to bees? Well, I don't like the beekeeping in Ukraine is huge. It's, it's very, there's very big, there are um, great beekeepers there, really productive uh, location in terms of plants that they grow, as you've mentioned. Uh, so I don't know how they're managing to keep going with bees, but we even import some stock from, from the Ukraine. That's happening for uh, the first time this year. So that will help some of those Ukrainian beekeepers. Uh, some of them have come over here to work for Canadian beekeepers too. Uh, Interesting. You know, given what's happening in their home country there. So it's funny how like there's bee connections throughout the world um, where it's a, a comp an activity that's pretty similar from one part of the world to the other. So we all uh, relate well to each other. When, what, I mean, what's the point? I mean, we all know the canary in the coal mine, you know, ecosystem of the bee when it comes to all things bees in the world. I mean, so obviously maintaining ecosystems matters. Uh, is it is it the trade of honey? Is it, you know, what is it for those who don't know? And I, I think I'm one of those people. Why is this such big business? And, and what what's the point of all of it? Uh, well, honeybees... Um as I've mentioned, uh, originated in Europe and North Africa. There are 10 different species of honeybees, um, but none of them were from North or South America. There's over 20,000 species of bees on the planet. So there's more species of bees than there are plant, uh, reptiles, amphibians, really? birds, all put together. Like there's no idea. a lot of different species of bees and they all co-evolved with the flowers that grow in their region. So they're very specific to what plants they're working on. Honeybees are a bit more of a generalist. They can work on a variety of different plants and where they originate, they're really important for food production. So pollinating fruit trees, uh, but you know, it, it's a good chunk of the food that we eat, about a third of the food that we eat benefits from bee pollination. So fruits, seeds, nuts, berries, vegetables, uh, many of them require bee pollination and honeybees are the most important pollinator for those food crops. So they're, they're really kept mostly for agricultural purposes, for the production of high products, including honey, and for the pollination of the food crops that require that pollination. So if I, I Paul, I, I've got a great business idea for you and me. We're going to go buy an orchard. We're going to Oliver, BC. We're going to buy ourselves a beautiful orchard. And we're going to, we're going to grow apples. You know, this orchard has been producing. Okay. But we need it to produce more. What's the first thing we do? Well, we need to look at getting our own uh, staff of bees so we can make sure that our pollination is efficient. Is, is that the kind of agriculture we're talking about? Well, yeah, but for the most part there, but the, the one thing is as if uh, it used to be farms did a bit of everything, right? There was mixed farms, maybe had a bit of orchard, some pigs, chickens, some bees and so right. on. Uh, we're much more specialized now, and so people that grow orchard have orchards are you know experts in orchards there, but they're not bee experts. So very mm-hmm. few people that met, uh, work in agriculture pr- as primary producers also keep bees. Uh, the busy seasons overlap, and it just it generally doesn't work out very well for uh, the farmer to keep their own bees. So beekeepers. 
are paid for the service of moving their hives to that, for example, orchard. Wow. And then when the, when the flowers are done blooming, the beekeeper can move those back out. And then those bees can go on to produce honey, or maybe they'll be moved to another crop to do pollination. Okay. Bad pun. Ready? <laughs> it's, I had no idea that the, the, the industry of bees was like Airbnb. Really? <laughs> it's kind of what it is. It is like Airbnb. They're flying around, uh, doing their, doing their thing. Yeah. It could be, that could be our business idea, Paul, Airbnbs. i love it so what do we need to know here i mean uh, most of us we hear stories of bees you've been a bee guy your whole life and and what do we need to know to make sure that you know we pay attention to this is there anything that us you know lay people can do well um just about everything's affected by uh climate change including bees so that's now that's a big picture thing that's tough for individuals to to deal with but yeah, we all need to be working together, and um, you know, there's a lot that needs to be done politically to uh, to minimize you know extreme weather conditions. Our bees actually do pretty well in warm temperatures, so it's not the warming and it's so much the issue. It's unseasonable weather, wonky weather patterns where it's too cold when it should be warm, or too warm when it should be cold. Uh, you know, plants. Bees require plants to work on, so the plants actually have to be in really good condition. So they need to get the sun, they need to get moisture, uh, have uh, nutrients in the soil and so on. Uh, So we're kind of uh, dependent on Mother Nature to provide the right conditions for the plants so that our bees can then thrive. Um, But beyond that, um, you know, some people uh, choose to help bees by planting for bees and by allowing some spaces to naturalize. Planting in our gardens uh, at home or uh, can can help bees. It mostly that mostly helps native bees because native bees work on individual flowers here and there, and uh, that helps them thrive. Honeybees go to where there are masses of flowers. So they're really good in agricultural situations where there's large quantities of a single species of flower. On one flight, a honeybee only goes to one species of flower. So for example, dandelion, 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 and then they go home and they find out they need slightly different nutrition or, you know, have some other conditions happening in the hive. And on the next flight, they maybe go to apple, 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 apple. And that way they're carrying the right pollen to transfer from the male part of one flower to the female part of another flower. And that's, that's basically flower sex. So bees are, have to step in the middle there and, and uh, provide that service. They're flower pimps. You can say it. That's right. Um, And also don't mix whiskey and tequila was really (laughs) where that went for me. And this is why you're the expert and I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) absolutely fascinating this is cool so let your flowers grow really is what it is and um consider getting some stuff in the ground that you know bring some flowers into the neighborhood why not yeah now one thing that uh, people often don't consider is trees many trees uh have uh, all trees flower basically but the many trees benefit honeybees and other pollinators and they automatically mass flowers together because they're a big big plant and they have a lot of flowers all in one spot there and once you when you plant a tree it's there for the long term whereas gardens tend to need maintenance 
Right. And you can't just plant some flowers and walk away and expect them to be growing in 10 years there. The, the exception to that, though, is if we allow spaces to naturalize, the plants that like to grow in that location will grow in that location, and very many of them benefit pollinators. Uh, here in Ontario, plants that are example of that are goldenrod, which blooms in the fall, sumac shrubs and trees, which bloom in the summertime. They'll just grow up naturally uh, and uh, if we don't mow too much or spray too much. Your, uh, the vanity of today's garden must drive you crazy as an environmental sciences bee guy. Um, I mean, it's sure pretty to have a nice garden, but, you know, the vanity around us being humans and sure is limiting on everyone who's living off that garden, eh? Uh, it is. And, and in some ways, we've bred some flowers just for humans, and they, they no longer benefit pollinators at all. Bees don't really? visit uh, some plants. But some of them can be pollinated by the wind as well. There's a lot of different pollination strategies plants have. The plants that pollinate by wind, those are the ones that people develop an allergy to. That pollen's blowing around in the wind. Right. It gets inside your nose. And then your nose is very much like the female part of a flower. It's kind of wet and sticky. And the pollen gets in there and it starts to fertilize your nose or it tries to <laughs> really hey and in doing that chemicals get produced that you react to and so it's uh, kind of uh, a frustrated uh, uh, pollen grain inside your nose that, well isn't that uh, interesting right i never thought of it from the like the flowers literally trying to grow inside your nose i mean yeah, that's yeah kind of what's happening uh, your background is really great i mean you started with a science project uh, back in elementary school and stuck with it and fell in love with bees. Um, in hindsight, is it just so natural for you? Just so you're just one of those lucky people that found it early and fell in love with the bees and the science of all this? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I I'm really, was really fortunate that way that uh, I, you know, when I started learning about bees, all these green lights just started flashing. Like it's I amazing. knew it was what I wanted to do with my life. And I have absolutely no regrets there at all. It's uh, fascinating work. Uh, we get, to, you know, honeybees are just amazing creatures. And working in this environment, I get to teach people about bees, teach uh, beekeeping methods. And, you know, beekeepers themselves are pretty interesting. So I get to, you know, hang out with some really cool people. And, and uh, no, it's, it's, it's been really great. I love it. New business venture, Airbnbs, coming your way. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much, Paul. I really appreciate this. This is fascinating. You're welcome, Shane. Thanks for your interest. I look forward to uh, catching up maybe at the end of the summer and seeing how did we do with uh, rebuilding some of these populations. Is that even possible? I'd be happy to do that, Shane. Yep. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.